Numbers chapter 26, let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for Jake's song and him and the worship that we've shared and the time we've been together already. We pray now, Lord, as we go through your word, may your word go through us and work in our hearts tonight in a good way. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a German playwright by the name of Bertolt Breck who once said this, what they could do with around here is a good war. What else can you expect with peace running wild all over the place? You know what the trouble with peace is? No organization. Actually, he's right. In peacetime, people get slack. People become self-centered and individualistic. But let a war break out and a nation tightens its belt. They draw together. They become disciplined and united. People get organized in wartime. You see, when Israel left Egypt, God ordered a census. His plan was to send His people to war. They were to invade the promised land and drive out the enemy, and so they got organized. The people were counted. The tribes were told where to camp and how to march. Moses mobilized and organized God's army and readied it for battle. But you see, it takes more than organization to do a work for God. All the mobilization and organization in the world can never take the place of a bold faith. Without faith, people get organized to go nowhere. And this is what happened to Israel. Due to their unbelief, they allowed fear to rule their destiny, and they failed to enter the promised land, and tragically, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But God starts over. And now that the first generation is dead in the desert, God takes their offspring and He mounts a fresh offensive on the inhabitants of Canaan. The promised land is still a promised land, waiting on someone to trust God and take possession. God is now ready to rally His troops and lead them to victory, but first, Israel needs to get reorganized. You see, wandering through the wilderness is no preparation for warfare. Tourist and soldier are two different, two different occupations. An army needs structure and accountability and a chain of command. And I believe that all this is a lesson for the church. In the New Testament, the Christian life is described as a battle. The church is God's army. And this is why we too need to be organized. Structure, accountability, proper authority are certainly no substitute for a bold faith, but they're still needed if we're going to be victorious in the spiritual battle that we face. The church should learn a lesson from Israel of old. There is a wandering mentality, and then there's a warfare mentality, and we need to adopt the latter. We do. We get a lesson on it in these chapters. Chapter 26 begins. And it came to pass, after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from twenty years old and above, by their fathers' houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Now, just as before, when Israel left Egypt, the organization begins with a God-ordained census. The book of Numbers begins and ends with God numbering the people. And remember, when God counts people, it only means that people count to God. Don't forget that. While in bondage in Egypt, these Hebrews were a nameless, innumerable band of slaves. Hey, to their Egyptian taskmasters, 
The individual was expendable. But now Israel belongs to God. Not Pharaoh any longer. They're God's people. And every single person matters to God. And thus to hammer home this point, God orders a census. I always remember what Augustine said. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. Nobody ever gets lost in the crowd with God. He accounts for all his kids. God has his eye on every single member of his worldwide family. So Eleazar and Moses, the pri- uh, Moses and Eleazar the priest. And notice it's no longer Moses and Aaron the priest. Aaron is now dead. His son Eleazar has taken his place. Moses and Eleazar spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt. This is the second census. The first one took place 38 years earlier. The first tribe that's counted is Reuben, Jacob's oldest son. And verse 7 tells us that there were 43,730 men, 20 years old and older, in the tribe of Reuben. The first census counted 46,000 men. That means the tribe of Reuben lost 2,707 men, or about 6%. Notice verse 9. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation, who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when their company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Indeed, they became a sign. God put his stamp of approval that day on the leadership of Moses and on the priesthood of Aaron. Authority was established and secured. Well, in verse 12, Simeon is numbered. He totals 22,000, more than half the 59,300 men counted in Numbers chapter 1. That means that Simeon has now lost 37,100 men, 63% of his tribe. The closest that any other comes to losing that many is Ephraim, which lost 20% of its men. It makes you wonder why Simeon suffered such heavy losses. And here's a possibility. Notice the chapter begins, and it came to pass after the plague. And if you go back to chapter 25, there we find a plague that came upon Israel that killed 24,000 people. And you remember what caused it? A leader of the tribe, incidentally, of Simeon took a pagan woman into the tabernacle gods and committed adultery right there before the tabernacle in the presence of God. And it so angered God that he brought a plague upon the people. And because this perpetrator was a leader among the Simeonites, perhaps the whole tribe was guilty of the same sin and therefore punished heavily. Well, verse 15 lists the tribes of Gad. They had 40,500 men, a loss of 11%. Verse 19 counts the sons of Judah. There were 76,500, up 3% over the 38 years. Issachar numbered 64,300. This was an addition of 9,900 men, or 18%. Zebulun numbered 60,500, a population gain of 5%. Verse 28 counts the sons of Manasseh. 52,700 men, 
Manasseh was one of David's sons, remember. In chapter 1, Manasseh had only 32,200 soldiers. Over 38 years in the wilderness, this tribe added 20,500 people, a remarkable increase of 64%. And notice a detail given in verse 33. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tersa. Evidently, Noah's kind of like Sandy. It can apply to either a girl or a boy. He didn't know that, did he? For some reason, that sticks out to me. At the time, an oriental census would have rarely mentioned female names. And we're going to find out in chapter 27 why their names appear here. Verse 35 totals up the sons of Ephraim. It's 32,500, sadly, a loss of 20%. Verse 38 totals the Benjamins, 46,500 men, an increase of 29%. In chapter 38, uh, in uh, the next section, Dan grew 3% from 62,700 to 64,400. The sons of Asher numbered 53,400. And notice there, one daughter gets mentioned in the tribes of Asher. Verse 48 counts Naphtali. There were 45,400 men, a loss of 15%. And then verse 51 sums it up. These are those who were numbered of the children of Israel. Here are the men, 20 years and older, 601,730. The total number, 38 years earlier, was 603,550. That meant that over four decades in the wilderness... Israel's national population shrunk just slightly, three-tenths of a percent. Overall, the nation lost 1,820 soldiers, meaning, and catch this, that life in the wilderness wasn't much different than life in bondage. And that should hammer home a point to us. God didn't save you to live your life compromised by fear and unbelief. That's not a much better life than life in bondage, life in sin. He saves us to bring us into a better life. He wants us to rise up in faith and possess God's blessings. God doesn't want us wandering in the wilderness. He wants us to enter into the promised land. He wants our lives to be bountiful and fruitful and full of victory. And it's interesting that the first census taken after Israel enters the land... Later in the days of David, 2 Samuel 24 records it. There they numbered 1.3 million men 20 years and older. Obviously, when the nation obeyed the Lord and entered the land, they more than doubled in number. There is prosperity when you obey the Lord. Well, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller." Now notice here, before the first shot gets fired, before the first battle gets won, God is already talking about how to divide the land. I'm sure that was encouraging to the Hebrews. 
Hey, when God goes before you, when you trust in Him, victory is assumed, it's assured. Verse 57, And these are those who were numbered of the Levites, according to their families, of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, and of Merari, the family of the Merariites. And you remember the three families of the Levites. It was their responsibility to carry the tabernacle. How good is your memory? Gershon carried the... Somebody? The fabrics, right. Kohath carried the furniture, and Merari carried the frame. There you go. Gershon the fabric, Kohath the furniture, and Merari the frame. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites. And by the way, the Mushites were the couples that went on the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain marriage retreat this weekend. They, it was so mushy and so much love flowing and so much romance going on, they became the Mushites. And the family of the Korathites... And Koath begat Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram, she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. Here we learn the names of Moses' mom and dad. Amram and Jochebed were the parents who hid their baby from Pharaoh's executioners. Hebrews 11, verses 23 and 24 includes these two in the hall of faith. There we're told by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Here we learn their names. Verse 60. To Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord, proving once and for all that when it comes to serving God, motivation does matter. Serve God your own way for your own purposes, and you too will get burned. Like Nadab and Abihu, you'll be a crispy critter. And by the way, here's a little known detail. This episode with Nadab and Abihu and the fire from heaven, you know, that resulted in them being burned. This is why sometimes we call priests friars. They were fried. Friars. Now those who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and above, for they were not numbered among the other children of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. Now, when Israel ends up in the land, when they occupy the land, rather than have their own territory, the tribe of Levi will live in cities within the boundaries of the other tribes. They get cities, Levitical cities. You see, Levi's unique inheritance was the Lord himself. For they served in the tabernacle. This made them an exclusive group. Their inheritance was not a piece of land. It was their love for God. Verse 63 These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai 
For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Caleb and Joshua were the two spies, remember, who brought back the good report. The two men who had faith. And God blessed Caleb and Joshua's faith with the unique privilege of being the only two men from a to enter this land flowing with milk and honey. Now, chapter 27 highlights a situation that demonstrates the faith of this second generation. But unlike their fathers, they believed they would possess the land. And their faith shows up, interestingly enough, in a squabble. Something that they did well. But at least it shows up. Verse 1. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah. And did I tell you that Noah can apply to either a boy or a girl? Kind of like Sandy. Did I tell you that? Okay, good. Hagla, Milcah, and Tersa. Salafahad was a spoiled man. He had five daughters. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company together against the Lord, in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among the brothers of our father, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, in most ancient cultures, only men could own land. But here these five daughters want their father's parcel given to them when the nation enters the promised land. And so they take their case before Moses, and to his credit, he takes this case before the Lord. You know, Moses could have assumed, and he could have just ruled according to custom. But understand this, often what's customary isn't God's will. And to Moses' credit, he keeps an open mind. He seeks the Lord. He brings their case to the Lord. And in verse 6, God renders his verdict. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. Certainly, Hebrew culture was ascribed, or a part of Hebrew culture was male leadership, and biblically so. But notice in this case, God sides with the girls. Just because God has called men to lead in the home and in the church, that doesn't mean that God's daughters have no rights, and we men shouldn't listen to them. I like that phrase. It says, the daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. And so often in my life, the Lord has spoken to me and said, Kathy speaks what is right. We ought to listen to the women God has placed in our lives. Verse 8. Do I get an amen for that? Yeah, I thought I'd get kind of a soprano type of amen there. Oh, okay, great. Good. You don't have to go overboard on that now. Verse 8. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying... If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. 
If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the kinsman closest him in his family, and he shall possess it. At the custom of the near kinsman, the kinsman redeemer. And we'll talk about that uh, when we get to the book of Ruth particularly. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, the end of chapter 27 is the end of the road for Moses. Verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. Now notice Moses doesn't, God doesn't say to Moses that you're going to die, though that's implied. Rather, death is, is seen as being gathered to your people. And I like that. In other words, there is a life beyond the grave. Death isn't a consignment to a hole in the ground. It is a journey to a populated place. Gathered to your people, he says. And if you just joined us tonight, you're probably asking, isn't Moses' death here a little untimely? I mean, Israel marches in while Moses checks out. I mean, Moses has been with them for 40 years. Why doesn't he enter the land? Verse, 11, verse 14 tells us, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes, and these are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And, and the Lord refers back to the mistake that Moses made that cost him entrance into the promised land. You remember as we talked about, Moses is a message to all Christian leaders that misrepresenting God is a big deal. God told Moses to speak to the rock, but in his anger he struck, he struck the rock twice. And of course, the rock represented Jesus. And Jesus needed to be struck only once for our sins. Now all we have to do is speak to the rock and out pours living water. But Moses messed up the picture. He marred the typology. And therefore, God refused to allow him to enter the promised land. Misrepresenting God is a big deal. Now Moses ascends to Mount Abiram. Abiram is actually a mountain range its highest peak is Mount Nebo, which rises 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea on the northeast shore. Those of us that went to Israel this last year, we stayed down in a nice hotel right in the southern end of the Dead Sea. And when you looked up north, you could see the mountain range on the other side. This is the mountains of Abiram and Mount Nebo. It was on the northeast shore. And from there, Moses could see the Jordan Valley. He could see the hills of Judea and Samaria beyond it. This is the end of the road for Moses. And I wonder what was on his mind. In his last days, what preoccupies Moses' attention? Verse 15 tells us. Then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. To me, this reveals Moses' heart more than any other instance. Moses has now done all that he can. He's about to leave this world. He has brought Israel as far as God will allow. Moses, don't you think it's time to worry about yourself for a change? 
But Moses cares about Israel. And he asks God to raise up a new leader. He's worried about this people. He doesn't want them to be sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting that until his dying breath, Moses' concern is the flock of God. Verse 18, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun. That doesn't mean he had no parents. It just means that one of them's name was Nun. And it doesn't mean he was the son of a nun. Don't go there. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand at him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. Now, Joshua had many qualities that make for a good leader. He was a man of faith, remember? He was mentored by Moses himself. He had seen God's glory through Moses. But the one key ingredient for leadership that's mentioned here, don't mistake it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can be mentored, you can have faith, you can have all the other qualities, but unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not equipped, you're not ready for the ministry God has for you. Well, God continues, And you shall give some of your authority to Him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim, At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. For a generation, Israel's leaders have been Moses and Aaron. Now the baton is being passed to Joshua and Eleazar. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Now in chapters 28 and 29, Moses describes the types and the number of sacrifices offered at the various feasts that were appointed by God. And it's interesting, one calculation says that of all of these annual feasts combined, a minimum of 1,269 sacrifices. That's a lot of beef. That's a lot of barbecue. Imagine now multiplying that number times 1,500. The duration of the Hebrew sacrificial system. That's a lot of sacrifices. And here's the point to remember. Not one of those sacrifices ever truly cleansed a man of his sin. All of those sacrifices looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ that would truly cleanse and forgive and atone for man's sin. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. Notice God calls the sacrifices my food. Now, the pagans believed that their gods literally needed to eat, like humans. But that was never the case with the one true God. In fact, in Psalm 50, God scoffs at the idea of needing protein in his diet. He says, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. They weren't feeding God with their sacrifices. He didn't need their meat. In fact, in Psalm 50, God continues, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Of course not. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Here was the point of all these sacrifices. Rather than feed God, they showed the person's thanksgiving. They were an opportunity to worship. The sacrifices were an opportunity to fellowship with God, to sit down at the table with God and have an experience and an encounter with God. And this is what our times of worship, this is what our acts of sacrifice are all about. They're opportunities for us to fellowship with God, to enter into His presence, to open up our lives to Him, and for us to get to know Him. In chapter 28, the first offerings he outlines are the daily sacrifices. Every morning, every evening, the priest was supposed to bring a male lamb and slaughter it before God. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. Along with the lamb, you were to offer a tenth of a bushel of flour and one and a half quarts of olive oil. Verses 9 and 10 describe the Sabbath sacrifices. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering... This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. In other words, on the Sabbath, you doubled the sacrifices that you offered each of the first six days of the week. Verses 11 through 15 provide details concerning once-a-month sacrifices. At the beginnings of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year, without blemish. Moses goes on to describe the grain offerings and the drink offerings that accompany these sacrifices. Remember, the, the drink offering was, in the grain offering, it was kind of like the A1 sauce on top of the steak. Gave it flavor, gave it that sweet aroma to the Lord. Now these monthly sacrifices were called, these monthly celebrations were called new moons. New moons. And they followed, of course, the phase of the moon. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14, God says to the people of Isaiah's day, I hate your new moons, your Sabbaths, and the sacred meeting. Apparently, by the time of Isaiah, these regular sacrifices had become hollow and meaningless, just a charade. Israel had tried to cover up the sin in their heart by offering these outward sacrifices. And there, God, thus God tells them in Isaiah, bring no more futile sacrifices. Wash yourselves. Learn to do good. In other words, straighten out your behavior before you come and offer the sacrifice. I guess the same could be say, said to us before we come into the church, before we give our offering, before we worship God. Make sure that our heart is pure toward God. Well, the sacrifices were supposed to be accompanied with obedience and godliness, not be a substitute for them. And again, the regular sacrifices were opportunities to worship. So, there were the two daily sacrifices. Then there was the Sabbath of the weekly sacrifice. 
Then there were monthly sacrifices. And now Moses describes the annual sacrifices that God requires. And in verses 16 through 25, we find the sacrifices that accompanied the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast took place seven days. The seven days after the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On each of those days, the people ate bread without yeast or leaven. And it's interesting that the first day of unleavened bread was the day that Jesus was buried. You remember that? His body, his life was unleavened. It had never been infected by the leaven of sin. If it had been, it wouldn't have been resurrected three days later. But because Jesus was sinless, God found no fault in him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Notice a holy convocation or a holy gathering took place on the first day and the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on those days, the people were not to work. They were to worship. Set those days apart to God. Verse 19, And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. And he goes on again to describe the grain offering and the drink offerings that were to accompany them. Now, verse 26 recalls the sacrifices of the Feast of Weeks. Also, on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. This was also called later the Feast of Pentecost. Remember, the word Pentecost was a Greek word for 50. And this feast occurred the day after the seventh week following the Feast of First Fruits, or the 50th day later. On this day, the priest would wave the two sheaves of wheat from the first of the harvest before the Lord. And it was on this same day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church to begin the last day's harvest, a harvest that continues today. And if we're going to be a part of that harvest and be a witness for Jesus, we also need the Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, verses 27 through 31 outlines the sacrifices offered at Pentecost. But for us, in application to us, we are that sacrifice. You know, it's interesting. There were three times in Scripture where God dedicated a dwelling place on earth for himself. At the tabernacle, Moses offered sacrifices. You remember what happened? Fire fell from heaven and consumed those sacrifices. Well, the second time a place of dwelling was dedicated was at the temple. And again, Solomon offered sacrifices. And what happened? Fire fell from heaven and consumed those sacrifices. Well, a third time God established a dwelling place for himself on earth. That was at the birth of the church. For today, we are the temple of God. We are his sanctuary. And you remember what happened? There on the heads of those disciples were dancing forked flames of fire. Again, God sent down fire upon the sacrifice. But the sacrifices that day were not dead carcasses. Rather, they were living sacrifices. People yielded to the Lord, to His will. And thus, when it comes to this Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Spirit, we are the sacrifices. And this is why Paul says that we're to offer ourselves living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, chapter 29 jumps to the three fall feasts of Israel. Verse 1, And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. 
You shall do no customary work, for you it is a day of blowing the trumpets. This was called the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The trumpet blew, sounding the end of the harvest. And the workers would come up out of the field to join this holy convocation. I like to call it a holy huddle. And what a parallel this is to the rapture of the church. For this is exactly what will happen when Jesus returns for his church. The trumpet will blow. The saints will gather up to a holy convocation. They'll come out of the harvest. That trumpet will signal the end of the harvest. And the saints will come up and be with Jesus in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Something like that. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. A trumpet will blow. The workers will come up out of the fields and will all gather to the Lord in the air for a holy convocation. I'll never forget over on Main Street one night after we had taught on the rapture, we'd gone through some scriptures on the rapture, we were all sitting around just sort of worshiping the Lord together in a time of prayer. I'll never forget, I was sitting down on the stage and we were just all meditating on the Lord. And all of a sudden, I heard, I almost felt my feet raising up off of the floor. It's never been so real to me. And I thought, this is it. This is the trumpet. The Lord's coming right now. And then I heard, that was a train coming down the track. But, but oh, how we need to be living in anticipation of that trumpet sound. Verses 2 through 6 lay out the number and the types of sacrifices for Rosh Hashanah for the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 7 describes the Day of Atonement, or in the Hebrew, Yom, which means day, Kippur, which means atonement, Yom Kippur. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your, your souls. And the Hebrews interpreted that phrase to mean a fast. You were to fast from food or to afflict your souls. And it's interesting, the Day of Atonement is the only place in Scripture where God ever commands a fast. You shall do no work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma. One young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. And verses 9 through 11 again describe these supplemental sacrifices. Verse 12 deals with the Feast of Tabernacles. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a convocation. You shall do no customary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous of all the feasts. It was a celebration. It was the time set aside for Israel to remember God's provision for them in the wilderness. On the Feast of Tabernacles, the family would pitch a tent literally make a booth or a tabernacle with the leafy palms and all out in the yard of the house. And they would live outside for those seven days where they could look up through the thatch and see the stars in the sky and remember what it was like to travel through the wilderness, how God had provided for them. And the sacrifices of the Feast of Tabernacles, boy, they were multiplied. Verse 13 tells us, You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, 
13 young bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs in their first year. Notice verse 17. On the second day, present 12 young bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish. On the third day, it was 11 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs. On the fourth day, it was 10 bulls. On the fifth day, it was 9 bulls. On the sixth day, it was 8 bulls. On the seventh day, it was 7 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs. Verse 35. You shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Now add that together, and that's a lot of bull. Seventy-one bulls, in fact, 15 rams and 105 lambs sacrificed over the course of a week. One man's tabulation says that in the course of a year, the priest would sacrifice 1,068 lambs, 113 bulls, 32 rams, more than a ton of flour, and some 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. And that doesn't include the thousands of individual sacrifices offered by the people. Those were just the sacrifices offered for the nation. In the days of Jesus, it was recorded that during one Passover, over 255,600 lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem during the Passover. And here's the thing you should never forget. And not one of those sacrifices ever took away a man's sin. Not one. All of those sacrifices were conditioning the people to their need and pointing them to their Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. Verse 39. These things you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feasts. And notice that terminology. Appointed feasts. Beside your vowed offerings and your freewill offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. So Moses told the children of Israel everything, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I have a question for you tonight. What is the best way to meet with a really busy person? Anybody got a guess? We'll have dinner. But, but there's, a, there's a, maybe a simpler answer. What's the best way to meet with a really busy person? Make an appointment. Excellent. And I'm not talking about you making an appointment with God. Understand that. Because God is not a busy person. Yeah, God's got a lot to do, I'm sure. But He's not a busy person. God is more accessible than anyone you'll ever meet. God is never too busy for you. You can go to God any time, day or night. You never need an appointment with God. No, the busy person is you. And therefore, because God wants to spend time with you, He has made appointments with you. And this is why God set aside these times for Him to meet with Israel. And he has that same desire with you, but life gets busy. And unless you have an appointment, you miss those times. 
He wants to spend time with us. He wants to fellowship with us. And understand, God desires regular times. Don't, don't you see this? I mean, he had daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, annual sacrifices. God wants regular times. Look at all of nature. And God loves to work in rhythm. God likes rhythm. Nate plays rhythm in his group. He, he's got a, he gets the groove going. He gets the beat and the rhythm going. You know, God loves rhythm. The seasons of the year is a rhythm. The phases of the moon is a rhythm. The tides of the oceans are a rhythm. Celestial orbits are a rhythm. All nature works in rhythm. And there's definitely a rhythm to spiritual life and communion with God. First, God wants you to make daily appointments with Him. He wants you to open the day and close each day by focusing attention on the Lamb, on Jesus Christ, and sharing with God how thankful you are for Him and for what He's done for you. Daily, twice a day, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. We need to begin our day and end our day by focusing on the Lamb. Once a week, God wants us to double what we give to Him on a daily basis. We need to set aside one day in seven where we cease from our work, our customary work, and we do something that maybe is not necessarily customary. We meet together to worship, to play, to fellowship with each other. Perhaps you never thought of taking a monthly time to get away and get back in rhythm with God. A new moon celebration might prevent a bad day or a rough week. What keeps my sanity is a periodic retreat with me and the Lord. And in addition to the daily and the weekly and the monthly appointments, God makes feasts that He wanted His people to observe annually. In other words, make sure that your Thanksgiving and your Christmas and your Easter is not just a day to stuff your face with food or to watch whatever sports happen to be on television. Make sure that you keep these annual feasts as appointments with the Lord. Author Eric Fife writes, we are so occupied with what we think is urgent that we don't have time to think about what is important. The urgent is always the enemy of the important. Unless we make an appointment. It's the appointments with God that keep us regular and keep us frequent and keep us in rhythm with God. Let me ask you one more question. What happens when you're not regular? <laughs> you get constipated, don't you? You don't feel right. You feel bloated and sick. Irregularity leads to all kinds of other problems. And the same is true with spiritual irregularity. God loves you. If you want to keep a constant flow of blessing going in your life, if you don't want to end up spiritually constipated, stay regular. Keep your appointments with God. Just trying to wake you up a little bit. <laughs> Chapter 30. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded... <clears throat> If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. 
he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Numbers 30 teaches us the seriousness of making a vow. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5 stresses this same point. There we're told, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Your word should be your bond. I want you to read this with me again. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, a marital vow, a business contract, a promise to your kids, to your friends, to a customer, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If you make a promise, it is vitally important to God that you keep your word. As Ecclesiastes says, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Vows are serious. Verse 3. Or if a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement, while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow in the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. In ancient Israel, it was understood that a single woman in her youth, we're told, remained under her father's authority. And this custom was not repressive, it was protective. For if this girl made a rash vow that her father knew would get her into trouble. He had the right to overrule her vow. The father had veto power over his daughter's plans. This is why it's nonsense that a teenage girl can go in for an abortion without her parents' permission, and she needs her parents' permission to get her ears pierced. I mean, it's ludicrous. The parents have a responsibility. The parents are in authority over the child and have veto power over the child's plans. They're a, they're a child. Hey, a father's authority in his daughter's life cannot be underestimated. There have been times in my little girl's life that I might not have said the right words or I might not have taken the right action or I might have done something that embarrassed her. But the fact that I was there, that I was the authority figure in her life, has saved my daughter from a lot of hardship. It has not been repressive. It has been protective. And I believe this principle of authority in the home has profound impact in our society today for fathers, for daughters, and for the other men's sons who want to date those daughters. And if your daughter is still in high school, living under your roof, this is a given. You're under your father's authority. And it's not repressive, it's protective. 
But I believe as a single daughter, even an older daughter, I believe she remains under her father's authority until she gets married. And a single man who wants to pursue that daughter should recognize and respect that authority. My daughter is, how old is she now? 21. I think it still applies to her. I've made that clear to some people in her life. Amen. And let me say something to you daughters. Don't resent this. Respect it. Because it's there for your protection. It's there for your safety. God has put your father in your life for a reason. It's for, he's for your protection. He's for your safety. He loves you. Verse 6 says, But if indeed she takes a husband, now she's made the mistake. She got married. She's moved out from under the father's authority. Now she's under her husband's authority. While bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears that her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she vowed and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. And this too is an excellent idea. Every credit card charge should have a 30-day window where the husband can actually go back and veto the charge. I'm being a little facetious here, ladies. Don't, don't. But, but just a little. Because let me, let me say to you, if you have a level-headed husband, and I'm not saying all women are prone to impulsive purchases. I'm not saying that. I don't have experience with all women, just one. And I'm not saying necessarily she's prone to impulsive purchases. But ladies, if you have a level-headed husband, you should use his, you should utilize his veto power. And it's not intended to be repressive. It's intended to be reprotective. Don't resent it. Respect it. It's good. It's biblical. God's put that man in your life for a reason. For look at this next verse. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If a woman has no male authority in her life, she has no one in authority over her to veto any bad decision she might make, and thus, if she makes some rash vow, it stands. And trust me, there is many a widow who wished she still had her husband in her life serving in this role. And if you're a woman, you'll probably outlive your husband. If you don't like his, you'll probably outlive him. You'll be on your own one day. You'll, you'll certainly outlive your father. One day they'll all be gone. And you know what? You might just wish you had them back. So while the man is in your life who loves you, then don't begrudge his influence. Respect him. Utilize his wisdom and his judgment. And let me draw one more application here. In a spiritual sense... We are all women, for we are all the bride of Christ. And Jesus is our authority. 
And I am so thankful for that. Because there are times when I make promises that I can't keep. And there are times that I ask for things that I don't really want and certainly don't need. And I am so thankful that Jesus to override my foolishness when necessary. Well, Moses continues in verse 10. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, and between a father and his daughter, in her youth, in her father's house. And there we have chapter 30. Do I hear an amen? Well, I heard a few guys, but I didn't hear many women. Amen? Okay, good. There's a few sopranos in there. Well, may the Lord bless you. We've had a good day. The Mushites are back from the marriage retreat. How was the marriage retreat? Some of you that went, you go well? Great. Thumbs up. Good. We got to hear from Jake tonight. He did a wonderful job. Tommy, Melinda, you should be proud of him. And we got into the Word this evening and a lot of fuel for thought, a lot of things to chew on. So Dr. Joel... Will you stand? Will you just come up and close us in prayer? You know, whenever I hear Dr. Joel pray, I, I get the impression that, that he's talking to somebody who's not very far away. So I love to hear him pray. Will you close us in prayer? God bless you. Good. I put him on the spot, so <laughs> while he's praying for you, you pray for him. That's right. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you, for you are awesome. You are wonderful. We can never appreciate you enough for your love for us, your kindness, your goodness, and your precious word to us, the word of wisdom, the light that we need in a world that is in darkness, the truth that we need when there are so many lies floating around. And Father, we thank you for your servant, Pastor Sandy, and the other leaders that we have in this church who break your word to us. We thank you that they serve as your oracles. Father, we thank you. We know that what is important is not hearing the word, as important as that is, but doing what you have told us, which is tough. For we know that the Christian life is an extraordinary life, it's a supernatural life which we cannot live on our own. So, Father, as we continue with this week, we pray that you will help us to walk in the Spirit. 
We pray that you will help us to be sensitive to your leading. We pray that you will help us to heed your word and apply your word in our lives so that we can have the fullness of life that you have promised. For we have prayed in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.